Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening this beautiful autumn long weekend in Adelaide and across South Australia. Lovely to be with you this morning. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. And I suspect there'll be many a gardener happy to spend three days of glorious time in their garden and say, how good was that? (laughs) I could not agree more. It is just sensational weather, 29 degrees here in Adelaide today and very similar around the state. And we've got so much to fit into this hour this morning, John. Yes, I think there'll be many people wanting to get into the garden and a bit of a tidy up if you're thinking of cutting back a light trim, not short back and sides, uh, to give fertiliser um, high priority. But if you're, only, if you're fertilising small quantities, not large quantities at this time of the year, and uh, I think uh, if you're going to plant winter vegetables, stay tuned because very, very shortly we'll talk to uh, one of our top commercial uh, agronomists, vegetable agronomist Dominic Cavallaro, how you can double your yields if you act now with winter vegetables rather than waiting till the break in the season. Then later in the program, Deb, we're going to have a quick chat to turf consultant Stefan Palm because it would appear that lovely lawns are being spoilt by unsightly brown patches. A very easy solution. It's all to do with soils which have become water repellent. Mm, I'm looking forward to Stefan Palm because I think I might have that problem with my lawn as well. And we'll give you details of how to participate in the 2022 tomato survey now underway. And I've got some double prize packs to give away. This morning, I've got one of the February and March Gardening Australia magazines and one Organic Gardening magazine and the March ABC Gardening Australia magazine. And it's got a bird on the front cover that I have never seen before. Absolutely stunning plumage. It's the rose-crowned fruit dove. I don't know that we have them here in South Australia, the rose-crowned fruit dove, but it looks absolutely beautiful. But right now, let's talk about how to increase your yield in the garden. And uh, Dominic Cavallero joins us, vegetable agronomist with Ag Seed Rural Supplies. Good morning, Dominic. Good morning, Deb. How are you going this morning? We yes, are great. Good. And John, how are you? Yeah, I'm going well. And, of course, you've changed from ag seeds to platinum ag now, I think, haven't you? Yes, that's right. Yes, that's yeah. yes, uh, I mean, and the main thing is that uh, Dominic is one of our top uh, commercial vegetable agronomists at Virginia, and they look after the commercial agronomist, but uh, the commercial tomato growers and vegetable growers, and he's uh, very good. He gives his time to talk back gardening, to talk veggies. And we want to look at winter veggies this morning, Dominic. Um, all too often, uh, people wait until there's a break in the season and the soils, uh, and that the break in the season may not happen until probably um, late April or even into May. Uh, whereas if you get out and plant now, can do, the weather's lovely. Um, what's the benefit of planting now rather than waiting for a break in the season? And if it's late, it's cold, the soil is, is, is cool and, and cold. Uh, ideally, John, uh, um, planting now and getting their soils ready now is firstly you've got the time to do it. So we've got a great weekend to do it. And, and more importantly, the soil temperatures uh, are still ideal to um, uh, allow for the roots to grow and for young seedlings and seed to get established. So um, it's uh, ideal time to uh, get the plants in the ground, uh, get the ground prepared and uh, allow them to to grow in this sort of lovely weather we've got at the moment so that um, you know come early uh, winter and late autumn we've got um, uh, some veggies ready to to harvest from the garden you mentioned the soil's nice and warm it's currently around about 20 to 23 degrees uh, at about 10 centimeters which as you mentioned is quite ideal okay so you mentioned that the soil is warm and the plants grow vigorously but what's yes. the link between the vigor of the plant now and crop yields when you harvest um, the, what, what we're aiming to try and do with uh, um, 
with our uh, gut, uh, plants in our garden is to actually establish the roots. And um, if we can get uh, early root development, um, that actually then, and strong root development and a, an extensive root de development within the soil, then that actually uh, sets the framework for, um, you know, whether it's a lettuce or cabbage or, or broccoli to actually uh, give maximum uh, size for leaves and also and yield as well. So, uh, so I look at a plant of the first half is actually really getting a good strong root system, getting into the you know, organic uh, nutrients in your soil and exploring all the access for water. And then that sets the framework up for an excellent yield. Very simple, isn't it? Grow a nice healthy root system early in the season and you get bigger crops at the end of the season. Yeah. So let's move on right, to... Very... Go on, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you keep going. Yeah, you were saying you get it right. Uh, yeah, if you get it right, it's very easy. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's take a look at getting it right. Um, soil preparation, of course, is pretty important. Uh, with winter veg, what kind of preparation would you be carrying out maybe this weekend so that you could start planting next weekend after the hot weather? So there's probably three things I, I look at doing. Um, uh, obviously, removing any previous crops and yeah, just checking to see what's the roots are okay. Uh, nothing uh, nasty like nematodes or or disease of the roots. Um, then the uh, first thing we look at is uh, uh, either some gypsum or lime, depending on the pH of the soil. So you get that in there to uh, help with soil structure and also available calcium. The next is um, uh, getting some organic um, compost into the soil. So you know, composted garden waste or uh, chicken manure, uh, and then um, a sort of source of uh, fertiliser like an MPK um, fertiliser or a pelleted um, chicken manure or something like that so that um, uh, we've got those three ingredients to uh, give us really good soil structure and uh, access to uh, the nutrients that the plants need to help with a good strong root system. Could we come back to calcium? Most fertilisers uh, and gardeners are familiar with the, the fact that they that the main fertilisers have nitrogen, phosphorus and potash, but uh, you don't hear too much about calcium. Why is calcium important? Uh, and uh, particularly in South Australia, where we've got lots of pretty calcium or high calcium soils, do we need to add extra or uh, is there sufficient in the soil? Um, in... Um, in if you've got limestone, then soil is sufficient there, but we're actually looking for available calcium. So what calcium does is it does two key things. One is it helps with uh, soil structure, so it keeps the soil open for drainage and aeration for a good, strong root system. Uh, it's available calcium, so calcium is similar to phosphorus. Phosphorus and calcium have a really key role in establishing a good root system. Um, and then uh, calcium is um, really important. As for humans, our bones and our skin, uh, it's the same with uh, plants. They need the calcium for strong framework and the produce that they produce for shelf life. Okay. And uh, with calcium, some plants need it more than others. Uh, perhaps could you just comment quickly on the need for root crops, why they need uh, phosphorus, I suppose, as well as calcium? Yeah, so um, uh, things like uh, carrots and uh, beetroots and those sort of uh, root crops um, need it for uh, um, uh, uh, establishing because that's the, the part we're actually harvesting. So uh, we want a really good strong root system and also for um, improving uh, the shelf life uh, after harvest. So um, you know, um, getting that in early uh, will improve the quality and uh, uh, and the uh, size of the, of the root crop. So let's take a look at what to plant. Now, some people think, right, oh, what I'd like is some quick results. Um, I, if I can plant maybe in the next couple of weeks, uh, and it would be nice to be able to start harvesting early in winter. Are there such crops for winter? Uh, yes, I think um, um, your, your root crops like your, um, uh, as we mentioned, carrots, you've got... Uh, the allium family, so you have your uh, um, you know, brown and white onions, uh, spring onions, uh, shallots that could be uh, uh, looked at being planted. Um, garlic would be in that group now, so I'd be looking, you know, getting uh, some bulbs into the ground and uh, the warmth will actually allow them to germinate and um, uh, you know, put out roots and establish a plant. 
uh, and um, and then your, your brassicas, so your cabbages and, and cauliflowers and uh, those sort of crops would do really well this time as seedlings, you know, where you can get, um, uh, I'd be putting them in a seedling so you can just sort of get them up and running uh, and then stagger them a bit and then uh, things like carrots and uh, onions uh, either by seed or put it into a little seed bed and then uh, take out the strong seedlings and plant them out as well so you sort of stagger them a little bit so uh, but utilising the warmth that we have now uh, is, is the key thing. My guest this morning is Dominic Cavallaro, who's a vegetable agronomist with Platinum, uh, Platinum Ag at Virginia, um, looking after the commercial uh, vegetable growers. But this morning, talking to Talkback Gardening listeners. And uh, let's take a look. Uh, if we continue, there's the, the varieties of vegetables that can be grown at the moment. Uh, just on a couple of those. Garlic. You mentioned garlic. Um, some people wait until probably uh, um, end of autumn before they put in their garlic. What's your thoughts on when's the best time to plant garlic? Uh, I think um, uh, garlic, I, uh, with, um, with, with commercial plantings, they look at around about sort of uh, April, May. Um, but, you know, we've actually got some really good conditions now. So if you want to sort of stagger it a little bit, then uh, it doesn't hurt to plant them a little bit earlier, just so that you can get a really good establishment and, um, um, and stagger the plantings a bit. So, uh, yeah, there's no, in a, in a home garden situation, there's no problems in uh, planting them a little bit earlier. And the principle we were talking about before, if you plant early, would you end up with bigger garlic than if you planted late and you end up with presumably small garlic? Yeah, it's the same principle, exactly. You're trying to get a good, strong root system, uh, get that early leaf establishment, and then you um, you set the plant up for uh, a strong uh, uh, bulb and weight at the end of the season. Many people like to put in their broccoli and cabbage. Uh, they get uh, them growing and you can see action fairly quickly, particularly if you're planting now. But then comes uh, the, the disappointment. Oh, goodness, there's caterpillars eating up my cabbage and broccoli. What to do? Uh, yes, that's um, it's interesting. Um, we've got some really ideal weather for growing plants, but also that's ideal weather for uh, bugs and aphids and grubs. So... Um, uh, the main thing is just to keep an eye out for them um, and, um, um, you know, if there's only small numbers, then you can just remove them by hand. But, um, um, you know, things like um, uh, um, cabbage moth, um, diamondback moth, uh, uh, diamondback moth is a um, uh, biological um, diapel, um, you know, pyrethrin sometimes helps. Um, keep an eye out for aphids and, uh, uh, and you know, there's a, uh, range of um, um, uh, uh, chemicals that are available from the nursery as well that can actually help um, depending on what you've you've got in your garden. Well, I think that should set the scene for gardeners to get them going and get them going early in the growing season. During the uh, uh, later on in the season, um, I wouldn't mind having a chat to you perhaps uh, as we move into next season's tomato growing time uh, and maybe we can draw from the survey, the tomato survey that's going on at the moment, um, Dominic. And once we've got the results from this season's survey, I'll send them up to you. You might uh, like to analyse those and take a look at so what are some of the lessons that we can bring back to, to gardeners for the following season. But thanks for your contribution this morning. No, it's a pleasure, John. Thank you. Thanks, Dominic. Dominic Cavallaro, wonderful vegetable agronomist and a great friend of Talkback Gardening here on a Saturday morning. You're our friends too and we want to help answer your questions. Well, I don't. John does. So call in now on 1300 222 891. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. And now we move to Norwood where Patrick wants to move a magnolia tree. Good morning, Patrick. Hey, good morning. Lovely day. Um, I'm just wondering, I need to move a uh, magnolia tree. It's, a, it's called a little gem. And um, it's, I'm only going to move it about 12, 13 feet. Uh, it's pretty much in the same situation. Is it a good time now or when do I look at doing something like that? You couldn't get a better time than right now, Patrick. The ground I'd is like warm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the important thing is the root ball needs to stay together uh, when you do the moving. And you might be surprised once you get down below about 15 or 20 centimetres how dry the soil is. And so you're starting to dig out, dig the plant out and you'll find that the root ball falls apart because it's all dry and crumbly. So maybe this weekend, and this weekend's not a good time to do it because I think we're going to get some pretty warm, or not warm, uh, well, yeah, it's warm but not hot weather early next week. So water the soil now. And maybe watering a little bit of a seaweed extract into the soil now. Good soaking, so go down about 20, 25 centimetres. And then next weekend, uh, dig the root ball and take as much of the root ball as you possibly can. Come out at least, say, 30 centimetres um, all round or more if you can and go down about 20, 25 centimetres. So you've got a big root ball. It'll be heavy. But just uh, do that, move it, put it back in, uh, water it well in, uh, mulch it, and uh, I think that should set you up and it should be uh, back in action and growing quite actively come springtime. Terrific. Do I have to trim anything off of that or just leave it as it is until it starts taking um, root again? Or... Is, is, it a, is it healthy and putting on uh, plenty of new leaves? Yeah, beautifully. Look, I've, I've done very little to it and it's growing fantastically. Oh, well, it depends on uh, if you leave it in the garden. Instead, uh, instead of being probably uh, three metres tall, it might even get up to five metres tall. But the thing with uh, that uh, magnolia is you trim it to whatever height you want. So if you want to reduce the height of it, Look at the uh, long, strongest branches and uh, say, pick the, a third of the, the longest branches and cut those back by two thirds and then they grow, um, and, but they'll be shorter. And the following year, again, you look at the longest, strongest branches and keep on reducing the size by cutting back the longest, strongest branches. Now, coming back to the fact that you need as many leaves as possible. If it's a healthy plant, it's got lots of leaves, and so you need to trim it back. So once you've moved it, I would go all over it, and every major branch and every major sub-branch, chop, take out the tip growth, and maybe two sets of leaves. And that will just uh, set it up and help get the root ball and the leaves back in, uh, in action. Oh, thank you. That's, that's great. You're doing a great job. Thank you very much for your help. Thanks very much for the call, Patrick. Lovely to hear from you. one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number. Sonia from Blakeview has an orange tree question for John Lamb. Hi, Sonia. Oh, hi. Um, I have a Kara Kara orange tree growing well. I trimmed it back probably a little, just some of the longer branches that were hanging down so much about four weeks ago, but I've noticed all the new growth is feral. It's lighter green. It has little ridges. Come, it's like a sucker when it comes up the bottom. It has little ridges in the stem and it gets little prickles in it. Why is that? I need. Uh, I lost something there. So you've got an orange tree. It's growing in the ground. Yes. Did you cut? Did you cut it back? Did you say, or is it just coming I, I, into new growth? I had. I I cut the branches back because they were getting too long, and I'm trying to keep the tree a bit smaller. So yes. some of the longer ones I trimmed back. Maybe I took a foot off. Um, you know, just to keep them back. I thought, well, they can bush out instead. They've started to put new growth on, but the new growth is feral. It's light green in colour. It's um, The leaves are a little bit curled in. Um, I don't know why the new growth is different than the original tree. Well, it is. It's because it's juvenile growth. And yeah. my best advice there is do nothing until it sorts itself out. When you cut uh, particularly citrus back quite hard, um, it's got a lot of energy. Uh, the root system <coughs> is still there, and uh, all the energy in the root system is trying to push itself into the new canopy, and uh, it will just push out a whole lot of little uh, small growths, and it'll look like a witch's broom. 
Now, do yeah. nothing until it, it sorts it out. Eventually, one of those little branches will say, ah, ha, ha, I'm going to be the king of the castle, and they will grow longer and stronger than the rest of the uh, uh, little branches. And at that stage, you encourage the longest, strongest king of the castle and then you can start reducing or removing uh, all the little thickets that are around it. And uh, the, the whole idea is to select enough new branches to form a nice, strong frame to carry future fruit crops um, and uh, don't let it have too many little, small, short branches. Establish your frame. Once you've got your frame, then you can sort of concentrate on producing lots of little small branches, which then later on will give you fruit. But, but Does that make sense? Right, this is right on the tips of the branches where I've already trimmed them back. Well, maybe... Uh, you, know, you know, it's not coming from the main stem or anywhere else. This is like when I have trimmed it back. This is the growth that's coming on the end of it now. So you've got a trunk. Let's say you've got a trunk and you've got a side branch and from that side branch there's another branch and you've chopped the, that, the, the, the secondary branch or the, th the third branch. You've cut that back and that's where no. you're getting this strange growth. Is that correct? No. no, I'm getting it on the tips of the tree where I've, I've cut it back. Say I have a long branch that's sticking out too far because it's against the vegetables so I'm wanting that side sort of be trimmed like a hedge. So I've trimmed the branches back, but all the new growth has got this feral growth coming on it, right at the tips. And all the branches or just a few? Um, most of them that I have cut back. I'd say just about all of them that I have cut back. What you're describing is very atypical. I would be comfortable if you took a branch, chop it off and take it to a garden centre and let them have a look at it. <laughs> but the same principle will apply. Um, if there's a lot of growth there. Uh, if it happened on all the branches, there's got to be something that's, that's, that's causing it. If it were one or two branches, it could be a virus, it could be a, an insect that's got into the, the tips and causing distortion. Um, but if you wanted to, you could let it sort itself out. One branch will grow bigger than the rest, and then you can decide whether you chop it back or keep it growing. Um, okay. I don't think it's terminal, but get somebody else to have a good look at it so that they can uh, give you probably a better solution than I'm able to over the phone. Okay, all right. Okay, well, thanks for your help anyway. I won't worry so much about it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Sonia. It'll be interesting to see uh, what um, someone that actually has a look at it makes of that one. Now, Stuart from Arendelle has a lovely dilemma. There's a garden party. When's that happening, Stuart? Good morning, Deb. Uh, garden party is going to be on Sunday the 25th of September. And what we're looking for is to have a, a large amount of potted colour flowering at that time. We were hoping to uh, grow something up in the weeks or months beforehand and I need some advice from John as to what would be flowering around about the 25th of September and when we should be planting. Right, well there's a big choice there. Uh, first of all, if you want something to grow up and over, um, it's going to be St. Patrick's Day on Thursday, and I associate St. Patrick's Day not with eating and drinking, but uh, time to plant your sweet peas. So get some sweet pea seeds and plant them now or th this weekend uh, or next weekend. And uh, if you put your sweet peas in early, they'll flower early. And by uh, late winter, early spring, you'll have a, a lovely display of sweet peas. Then if you go to your garden centre, you'll find there's a quite a lot of winter, veggie, uh, winter flowers coming in. Things like your snapdragons would be ideal. Dianthus would be another good one. Um, and depending on whether you've got plenty of sun or shade, if you've got shady areas, um, I think probably bedding begonias if it's not frosty. And uh, okay. I think that – go ahead. Yes, look, I was actually looking for something to put into pots. We want to have about 60 to 100 pots of flowering plants. Right, huh? well, um, there are nice pansies. Get some pansies as, as one. They don't grow tall, but um, the snapdragons, 
and you can either get uh, short ones, which only grow, say, 20 centimetres tall, or else you can get uh, uh, taller ones, which grow about uh, 40 centimetres tall. And they, if you look after them, they'll make a nice display. Um, and I think probably your dianthus also would be a good value, and you can get those in different sizes. But they are, they are all quick, and, and they've got good cold tolerance, so there's lots of other things that will give you colour in spring, but they will give you. They will grow slowly during winter, and by September they will be big enough and in, and give you enough colour for what you're looking for. So when when should we be planting, say, pansies, snapdragons, or dianthus to get this, them flowering? Uh, well. well Normally, I'd say this weekend, but because we're going to get uh, some temperatures in the low 30s early next week, uh, I would be taking caution to, uh, and just be a bit cautious and uh, prepare this weekend, plant next weekend, but don't wait too long. The quicker right. you get it in, as Dominic was talking about the veggies, put them in now, they'll be twice the yield uh, when you harvest them. The same applies to flowers. If you put them in now, you'll have twice the size of flower, and that means you've got twice the potential for colourful blooms. So don't waste any time there, Stuart. So, John, if we went out and bought those uh, particular um, articles, items now, would they flower before September or would we need to be pruning them back or will they just get bigger and better? Uh, well, it depends on the size of the seedlings. If you wanted to and you could afford it, you could buy what I call bloomers, six packs, and they, it'll cost you about $1.50 a plant. Um, but they will start flowering almost immediately and flower through winter and uh, give you a great display in springtime. But if money is, is a consideration, if you buy seedlings now, well-established seedlings only cost you probably 30 or 40 cents a, a plant. And uh, if you put them in now, they will be, they'll start flowering probably towards the end of, uh, say, in August. Um, and by September, they will be tall and in flower. Thank you, Stuart. Um, sounds like a lovely affair. Hope it goes very, very well indeed. And uh, funny to this text to the Sporting Gardener that says, for potted colour at 25th September, make some displays of football team colours to get in the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Um, Stuart, sorry, Scott from Morfittville, you would like to kill a grapevine, Scott? I would, and it's rather embarrassing because I've worked in the vineyards for over 20 years. <laughs> And uh, obviously, I'm in the business of growing and not killing them. Um, but I've I've grown one in the backyard, and I don't like it. And I just want to get rid of it. But I wouldn't mind keeping the actual framework of the the, the grapevine itself to grow passion fruit or something on. So how? Oh, I see. Okay. <clears throat> right. I was about to sort of say, look, all you have to do is chop it off, uh, chop the trunk off, and uh, uh, get a mattock and pull up most of the root system, and that's it. But if you want to keep the framework, that's a different matter altogether. Um, what I would be doing? What would I be doing? Out with the secateurs this weekend and uh, chop off as much of the canopy that you don't want. So that leaves you with your main framework and maybe uh, some of the, the uh, side laterals that are uh, of a reasonable size and you chop the frame back to what you want. And at that stage, um, you need to get the blackberry killer. The active ingredient is triclopore. And at that stage, uh, having got your framework, you leave it there, but you come down to ground level and about uh, 40 centimetres from ground level, you ring bark the trunk and you start to administer the blackberry killer. Um, you can either bore, bore holes and put it in uh, if you know how to do it. I would just get a, a knife and go around the, uh, the butt of the plant, of the, the grapevine, and make a little uh, saucer-type area where you can actually pour the chemical in, mix it up and pour it in, uh, go away, and every half hour you come, keep on coming back and pouring the chemical into okay. the little area that you've got uh, uh, for the chemical to, to uh, be absorbed. And if you get enough chemical in, that will go down into the roots before the end of winter, and in springtime, you should have 
a frame but no growth. Ah, oh, that sounds really good. I'm, I'm so glad I um, rang and asked you now, John. Well, that's, and, um, that's the what way, the program's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, um, someone with a fine Irish surname. Thanks for the tip about the sweet peas. I won't forget that one. The sweet peas? Oh, yes, I think uh, a lot of people, again, wait far too late before this put the sweet peas. They keep on reading gardening books, uh, and they're written for the eastern states, or they're written for, uh, you know, uh, 50 years ago, and now we've got better varieties uh, with more flowering potential. And the principle that Dominic was talking about, if you put in early, you get early growth, and from early growth, you either get bigger crops or more flowers. Scott, um, going from growing grapevines to killing them, I hope you get the frame that you want there. Thanks very much for the call. Don't forget I have two packs of ABC gardening magazines to give away, one of an organic gardener magazine and the latest March ABC Gardening Australia magazine. It's got absolutely beautiful um Beautiful bird on the front cover, which is the rose-crowned fruit dove. Never seen that one before. And another pack that's got the February and March ABC Gardening Australia magazines. Don't call now. That's a little bit later in the program. Coming up next, though, we're going to talk about why you might have some big brown marks on your beautiful green lawn. Stefan Palm. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. very heartening to walk into a garden uh, that features a healthy grass green lawn but this season mayhem out there a lot of the lawns are being uh, the, the visual effect has been lost because of these unsightly brown patches appearing all over the place is it insects maybe beetles black beetles or could it be fungal problems? Or is there a nutrition problem there? It's none of those problems. But the person has got a very simple answer to it is going to talk to us right now. We say welcome to Stefan Palm, Turf Consultant uh, and a great contributor to ABC Talkback Gardening. Good morning, Steph. Good morning. So let's take a look at those unsightly little patches out there. What's causing them? Yeah, look, we get a lot of people, like you say, come in with um, um, and talk to us or we go out and consult and see these big wax of patches in amongst really nice green grass and people say, what is it? And they, they do, like you say, they try all the usual stuff. Um, we find that in, in nearly 50% of the cases, um, it's because of a condition in the soil where the soil simply repels water. Um, and so you put water on your lawn, you, you water your lawn evenly, the whole lawn gets a good drink. Some areas of the water absorbs into the lawn and some areas it doesn't. And in the areas where it doesn't, of course, the lawn only grows really shallow roots. And when the sun comes along or when we've got dry weather, it simply um, um, dries out quickly and, and, the, and the lawn um, browns off. So you get these brown it seems, patches. Yeah, it, it seems quite perverse. You sprinkle water all over the lawn and instead of running in, it runs over. Why? Yeah, because water, like as water is, um, takes a path of least resistance and so if it can't get in one area it'll roll in another but what, why do some areas of your soil repel water and others don't and the answer is um, that all soils or most soils don't absorb water evenly anyway even if there isn't a problem soils will unevenly um, absorb water but then there's other factors that creep in and you know when we've got this dry weather that we've been having lately um, when soils dry down to a really dry level they're really hard to re-wet like when a soil gets bone dry and you try and put water on, often it'll just sit on top and it takes a lot of soaking rain or water to get it to take water in again. So it's cool. that's called its re-wetting potential is really low. Like it just can't take it back in again. And then you get other issues like organic material in the soil breaking down and leaving like a waxy residue in the soil, which of course repels water as well. So you've got these contributors, dry climate, um, no rain, organic material breaking down. Soils just naturally become non-wetting and it's very common. Is it a problem only in sandy soils or can it happen to all kinds of soils? Look, it, it, it mostly is. Like, um, it, it, it commonly happens in sandy soils, although it can happen across a broad spectrum of soils. It, it rarely happens in a solid clay, but you've got, um, uh, when, when you've got a mix of loams and sands together and even some content of clay, you, you, you're a potential for non-wetting sand or non-wetting soils. But, okay, so, so the soil can come water repellent, what's the link between 
water repellent soils in the brown patches. Yeah, um, as I was just um, um, alluding to before, when when you've got a water repellent soil, you you put um, water on top. The water doesn't sink in; it rolls off to an area where it can sink in, and that soil then, well, that but that patch of lawn where the where the water didn't sink in, it's screaming out for water, even though you just water it, watered it, and ironically, more water won't solve the problem because it just continues to roll off. And you can test this because you can, by just simply going out into your backyard and doing a normal watering pattern like you usually would, get a hand trowel, dig a hole in the middle of a dead or dying patch and see what the soil condition's like. And you might be surprised to find that directly after you've watered it, the soil's still bone dry. And that's that, that, And then you've identified the problem. Well, how about that? War, more water is not the answer and watering yeah. longer presumably is not the answer. So what is the answer? Well, when you when you get these um, incredibly non-wetting soils, you've really got to step in with some intervention, and that is by way of your, your simple wetting agents. So liquid wetting agents, the ones you can click on your hose, you can get them anywhere. Um, and it's not just applying a wetting agent once. Wetting agents actually don't last in the soil very long. They, they coat the soil and they enable the soil to absorb and penetrate water, but they break down quickly. So my advice would be over the course of the warm season, um, from late spring through to early, early autumn, look to put on a wetting agent on your lawn about every six weeks. You really can't go wrong. It, it, it helps get the water down, and if you can get the water down, you can also get nutrient down. You develop deeper roots. You develop drought tolerance, disease resistance. It's, it's just the flow-on effect um, to the overall health of your lawn once you can deliver water down at least 50 millimetres into the soil. Righto, so that material, that chemical you're saying, uh, if, if they just go to a garden centre and say, I want some soil wetter, and sure, show me your soil wetter department, uh, that should set them up? Yeah, as long as they don't, like, I would strongly advise just liquid wetting agents, not not the solid type, but go for the liquids. The, the hose-on type ones are good enough in this instance. Um, and yes, put them on in the cool part of the day. Uh, wetting agents can burn if you put them on in heat. Um, so... Um, my, my advice to our application is actually go out and put a bit of water on your lawn first. Directly after that, click on your, your wetting agent, spray it all over your lawn, and then water it off straight away. And if you do that in the kind of, you know, mid, early mid-morning, you'd be, you'd be set. Okay, that's worth repeating. You need to sort of dampen the soil down first, then put the chemical yep. on, and then water yep. it in. And then water it in. Give it a really solid water after you've done it. So like a good a good 25 ml of water, and that could take up to an hour on your irrigation system per zone because you really want to encourage that, that wetting agent to get down as deep as possible mm. into the soil. Stefan, we're talking about uh, treating lawns, but I would presume that uh, often uh, plants growing in pots, when they water, the water runs down the side. Would a soil wetter fix that problem? Yeah, you, you would be astounded. When, when I go into people's properties and I consult on lawns and, and I see their non-wetting problems in their lawn, almost... Almost in every instance, you can look across to garden areas and you can see exactly the same problem repeating itself when you see stunted plants and plants that won't thrive and, um, you know, they, they look really ratty. And you can simply grab a, grab a container of water and pour it on, the, pour it on those areas too for a customer and, and um, you, people's eyes light up and go, wow, I never knew. They get so much water and they're so dry. But it really is for garden areas as well. It's the elixir of life. It really can inject life back into your garden. The problem of unsightly brown patches easily controlled with a soil wetter. Stefan Palm, thank you for your contribution. Look forward to next time we chat. No problems at all. Stefan, I'm just going to hold you just for a second because Paul from Mount Gambia has rung through with a lawn question. Paul, what did you want to ask Stefan? Uh, yes, look, we, we live in a really sandy sort of soil. But we, our bore, we rely on bore water and it's high in calcium magnesium and we've been told by um, some of the experts that this adds to the um, non-wetting, um, makes the soil more unwetting, if you like to put it, because it forms, the calcium magnesium often forms like a film over the top of the soil as it binds together. Um, yep. Which one of this is correct? Yeah, and you can do that in extreme cases where you, where you do have, but they can actually form into a solid and create a barrier. And that's more of a... Um, um, a, different, a slightly different sort of issue where you can actually physically inter, um, break that barrier um, um, to, to allow um, water to pass back through it again. It's not so much, it, it is making it water repellent because it's blocking water, but not because of the, the soil itself is repelling it. It's because you've got a physical barrier. Um, so that, that is an issue as well, can be. Unusual, but it is, it, it can contribute.
Thanks for that, Paul. And uh, just finally on the text line, someone says, do wetting agents themselves in the long run make the soil more repellent later? No. They, they coat, they, liquid wetting agents coat the soil in a, in a polymer um, and it, um, the, the water then sticks to the wetting agent, which is stuck to the soil. So, um, no, in the long run, they can't. Um, I wouldn't go tipping them on every day, but um, there, there is no negative side effects, so to speak, by using a wetting agent according to the label. Brilliant. Um, that you read on the container. Stefan, thanks for sticking back for those last couple of questions. Appreciate it. Um, enjoy the long weekend. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan Palm, our wonderful turf consultant. And, John, before we get back into our talkback gardening calls, um, just to let you know that Gail says, uh, listen to you, tried a second crop of cukes and zooks as, as seedlings five weeks ago. They're producing like crazy along with my old plants. Also, plant seedlings of broccoli and cauliflower, they're all growing like crazy. Sprouting broccoli is 12 inches high all in wicking beds. So there you go. Thanks for following that advice, Gail. Really appreciate that. Um, Andrew is in Sojourner. Now, Andrew, what have you been doing to kill your weeds? Oh, good morning, Deb. Good morning, John. I've been using briny water from a salt lake, but I only use it around the, the, the garden, oh, sorry, not the garden beds, but like the pavers and around the shed. And my question to you is, um, we've also got a pet rabbit, and is using such a um, a substance harmful to rabbits or pets? It depends on how much salt is in the water, uh, but what will happen is the longer you use it, the bigger the concentration of uh, salt will be in the soil or the, uh, at the edge of your pavers. Um, if it was just uh, salty water you're putting on and they come along and just lick it, I don't think that's the end of the world and the end of your rabbit, um, but I'm not an expert in that area. Um, no, no, I wouldn't. Do you have any concerns for what I'm doing? Is there, I mean, it, it's I would, working. It's fantastic. Well, I'd be concerned. Salt and soil don't go together. And if you find that the salt is, uh, the water is creeping out into your garden beds, uh, the soil, the plants growing in there, it'll kill the roots. They can't uh, grow in salty soil. And so uh, I think if you've got a weed problem, there are much better solutions. And probably one of the most effective is the latest weedicide slasher. Slasher. It's just made out of plant oils selected to burn the roots off. And if you uh, just treat them with uh, slasher when they're very, very small, a little bottle of slasher will last you 12 months uh, and get rid of your weeds and you won't cause any problems to rabbits or to the garden soil that surrounds the paths. Okay, Andrew, so interesting one. You might need better advice um, about your animals, but certainly when it comes to plants, um, they don't love salt, that's for sure. We'll quickly go to Chris in Victor Harbour. Now, Chris, on the animal theme, you've got chickens or you would like to have chickens in your orchard. That's correct. Yes, I've just, um, my husband's just bought, built me a nice chicken coop next to the orchard. Um, and in the orchard at the moment, I've got three apples, donut, peach, cherry, uh, and a couple of citrus. And they're around about two years old. Um, if I let the chickens out around those trees, do I have to protect the, the roots? Or are they going to really. do damage? No, no, mm -hmm. no, no. So long as they're, they're not sort of making little dust nests, sometimes you get a mm -hmm. chooks and they like to make a little uh, hole and, and, and they uh, fluff up the soil. So if you've got dry soil, that could be mm -hmm. uh, uh, disastrous. But otherwise, mm -hmm. it could be actually quite advantage because um, fruit trees, uh, if you've got moisture near the surface, they'll come to the surface. And so you've got lots of your little roots up near the surface. The chooks come along and they keep them on scratching maybe the, the top one or two centimetres, and that kills the little roots there, but those roots are much better down deeper in the soil. And so long as you've got plenty of moisture deep down below that top soil, um, top two or three centimetres of soil, uh, the fruit trees will probably benefit rather than suffer. Excellent. That's, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that Chooks will do all the weeding for me and keep everything <laughs> yeah, under no. control and dig everything through. So. Put lots of mulching material over it, straw and things like that. The, 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 the chooks will scratch it all up. Uh, they'll leave their uh, little uh, manures behind and that'll just improve the topsoil. And then what happens is the nutrients get worked 
or taken down into the, where the roots are active and that's where you want them. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, lots of calls this morning on Talkback Gardening. We hope to get to as many of them as we possibly can. But um, we do need to talk quickly about fruit fly because uh, I know... John, that fruit fly detections um, have been extending the outbreak end date. Yes, here in the suburbs, I think we're free. We can now, uh, they've lifted the lid and uh, at this stage, uh, I have not heard of any reports of fruit fly in the suburban area, which is excellent. And thanks to the fruit fly team for uh, what a tremendous program they ca- they've carried out in the last 12 months. But Deb, it would appear that uh, there are still fruit fly in the riverland and so they haven't been able to lift the lid on the restrictions. I know. I I certainly, I know that that's not made Citrus SA very happy because, of course, a big impact on the industry there. But, um, yeah, it's very important. They're saying if you live in Renmark West or Pike River Red Outbreak areas, you need to keep the fruit on your property. Don't shell, uh, sorry, share, sell or give it away. Pick fruit and vegetables as soon as they ripen. Collect all fallen fruit. Uh, put them in your green littered bin or a red littered bin, except for residents in Pike River. They need to be sealed in a plastic bag. And you need to call the Fruit Fly Hotline for collection, which is 1300 666 Zero one zero. That's the fruit fly hotline. One three hundred triple six zero one zero. Did you have anything to add on that, John? I just I think many people might be going interstate, and the important thing is whatever you do, make sure you don't bring fruit. Whether uh, well, you just don't you can't bring fruit into South Australia. Respect the laws, and if you don't, you'll get pinged a very hefty fine. Mm. So uh, South Australia needs to be protected from fruit fly, and our heart goes out to those in the Riverland who are still in jail. It's not fair sometimes that they have to sort of bear the cost of uh, keeping the rest of the industry free, but uh, that's life. Quite right, John. Thank you very much for that. If you have not won anything from us in the last month, and you can tell me what bird is on the cover of the March ABC Gardening Australia magazine, Near Enough is Good Enough, call now on 1300 891. We've got two magazine prize packs to give away. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide. Now, Kath is in Coromandel East. You've got a wisteria question, Kath. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I have about a 40-year-old standard wisteria in my front garden on a sloping area and it's unwettable soil. I've just been thinking what I've just heard about the lawn soil. Anyway, what's happened is that I'm not sure when to prune this because it's grown very fast in the last few months. It's got long tendrils. I would love to just shape it a bit. Can I do that now or would that affect its flowering? And then it's got one patch where the leaves became scorched at the edges and now it's looking almost dead. Now is a good time to grab your secateurs, maybe not this weekend but next weekend, and those little long tendrils... Chop them all off. Now is a good time to do it. But don't chop them right back to where they came from. Leave one or maybe two buds, two sets of leaves, and cut them back to those one or two sets of leaves, and that sets it up. And that's probably the only pruning you'll need to do. Wisterias prune, uh, uh, form their, their flower buds on little, uh, little spurs, and by just leaving a little stub at the base of each of those little tendrils, you'll increase the amount of spurs increase its flowering potential and they'll be uh, probably uh, uh, better little uh, flower buds than if you keep on chopping back into the old, old, gnarled uh, spurs. So uh, just prune them now and I wouldn't worry if if, uh, there's some leaves looking a little bit untidy. They're all going to drop soon and it'll be a new parade next spring. Now, if it's been here 40 years and the sprinkler system's really old, is it possible it's not getting enough water now? Or would it not be if it's putting it on strong, I would suggest if it's putting on strong growth, 
uh, then it's getting enough water. Look to the leaves. The leaves will tell you if they're looking dry, uh, then that needs more water. But if the leaves, are particularly this new growth and the new leaves are looking nice and green, I wouldn't do anything at this particular stage. Uh, don't water. Don't walk away from watering. When you do water, give it a deep water so that the water is soaking down at least 30 centimetres to where the main moisture-gathering roots are, are concentrated. Thanks, Kath. Good luck with that. Congratulations to Colin from Highgate and John from Woodchester, who correctly answered that the bird on the cover of the March ABC Gardening Australia magazine is, in fact, the rose-crowned fruit dove. I would have accepted dove, though. Uh, Jim from Coromandel Valley, you've got weevils in your lawn. Well, I don't know, Deb. Good morning, uh, Deb and John. Uh, back in December, I picked up a, a large insect, two to three uh, sort of centimetres in length and I've identified it as a weevil and I too have some brown patches in my lawn and just wondered if that could be the cause. Um, I would suggest that your brown patches are more likely to be non-wetting soils. Get some water, yep. pour it on and if it runs over, that's the problem. Your weevil, is it a grub or is it sort of a uh, crawling, it got legs on it and it runs no, over no, the no. ground? I've identified it on the Google Lens, John, and it's certainly a big weevil. It's a weevil, right? Well, the thing is, if it's a weevil that's running around, uh, is it causing any damage? And uh, uh, if there are plants around it and the plants are being affected, it could, the weevils could be eating the roots. Um, yes. It could be, if you've got a large number of them there, they could be causing uh, uh, the patches. Um, right. If you're really worried, get some bathroid. Bathroid, it's not, uh, yeah, and just water that into the area where you can see uh, is affected. And uh, if it's a, it's one of the few insects insecticides which will control weevils effectively, and uh, it's relatively safe from an environmental point of view. But it's an insecticide; it's toxic, so treat it with care. Jim, good luck with that. And sorry to all of the callers that rang through that we didn't get to this morning, but we do appreciate all of your calls and comments. And you can, of course, call in for Sophie Thompson with Peter Gers tomorrow morning between 11 and 12. John, the Tomato Survey 2022 is open, so you need to go to the Good Gardening newsletter that would have hit your inbox yesterday. If you haven't already subscribed, make sure that you do that, and then you'll get it an opportunity to do it next week. And it's the 21st of March, John, is the end date, and then we'll give That's feedback right. after that. You need to be quick, but if you just Google John Lamb Good Gardening, that will give you access. All you need to do is fill in the little box and put in your email. It doesn't cost you anything, and you get free information every Friday in your computer. But uh, I reckon that's about it. I'm going to get out in the garden myself and enjoy three days of gardening. And until next week, I'll say good gardening.